We are seekers. This is a seeker-sensitive service. No one seeks God, O Lord, we know in the Scriptures, unless you first seek us. And those who seek you, find you. And those of us who seek you, continue to seek you. And continue to pursue after you. It's the believers who are seekers. And so, Lord, in that sense, we do pray. Lord, I pray Your your special blessing upon this message this morning. I, I pray, Lord, that You would show us more clearly than ever of how the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an indisputable fact. How Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's something we ought not to doubt. It's something we ought not to put back in the recesses of our mind. It is prominent in our faith. It is important for our evangelism. It is key and crucial to the whole warp and woof of Christianity. Of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray this morning as we look at those who sought to deny the clear facts, Lord, that You would show us how vain those denials are. And I pray that You would touch our hearts and cause us to see the realities of Christ risen from the dead. That great truth in life and history that gives us hope for future. God, for we don't have, we don't have no hope like those of the world who simply would see us die and that be the end. We don't have the hope of those who would die and would perish eternally in hell. But through faith in Christ, it's we who have a hope that we will live forever with a risen Lord to worship Him and give great honor and glory to Him. Lord, so now come and anoint Your Word. Stir our hearts. Increase our faith. And give us perseverance, Lord, that we would seek You at all times with our whole heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by reading to you a lengthy quote from Philip Schaff. He was one of the most renowned church historians of all time, written some great works on church history. And he he wrote this, he said, The resurrection of Christ from the dead is reported by the four Gospels, taught in the epistles, believed throughout Christendom, and celebrated on every Lord's Day as an historical fact, as the crowning miracle and divine seal of His whole work, as the foundation of the hopes of believers, as the pledge of their own future resurrection. It is represented in the New Testament, both as an act of the Almighty Father who raised His Son from the dead, and as an act of Christ Himself, who had the power to lay down his life and to take it again. The ascension was the proper conclusion of the resurrection. The risen life of our Lord, who is the resurrection and the life, could not end in another death on earth, but must continue in eternal glory in heaven. Hence, St. Paul says, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Schaff continues on, The Christian church rests on the resurrection of its founder, 
Without this fact, the church could never have been born. Or if born, it would soon have died a natural death. The miracle of the resurrection and the existence of Christianity are so closely connected that they must stand or fall together. If Christ was raised from the dead, then all His other miracles are sure. And our faith is impregnable. If He was not raised, He died in vain. And our faith is vain. It was only His resurrection that made His death available for our atonement, justification, and salvation. Without the resurrection, His death would be the grave of our hopes. We still would be unredeemed and under the power of our sins. A gospel of a dead Savior would be a contradiction and a wretched delusion. This is the reasoning of St. Paul and its force is irresistible. And Schaff concludes with this sentence. He says, The resurrection of Christ is therefore emphatically a test question upon which depends the truth or falsehood of the Christian religion. It is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion which history records. It is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion that history records. Josh McDowell made a similar conclusion. He said, after more than 700 hours of studying the subject, and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, and heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men. Or, it is the most fantastic fact of history. See, regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's no gray area. Either Jesus Christ rose from the dead... And it is the greatest fact of all time. Or Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead and its legend has become the greatest fable of all time. It's either history or it's a hoax. It's either fact or it is a fiction. And ever since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there have been those who refuse to believe that He rose from the dead. Many has simply said, I don't believe it, and they don't want to. They said, dead people don't rise from the dead. Certainly, Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead either. Many are unwilling even to think about the evidence. But those who begin to think about the evidence and still deny the resurrection often come about with theories which they have made up and concocted in an effort to justify their thinking. It shouldn't surprise us. Because in Romans chapter 1, it says that that God in His glory has been manifested and made clear for all to see, everyone who walks on the planet. But what do people do? They know God, but they suppress the truth and they believe a lie. And many theories about the resurrection are merely a suppression of the truth to believe a lie because they don't want to deal with the realities of a risen Lord and the implications upon their life. So some say his body was stolen or that Jesus didn't die upon the cross or that his body was in another tomb or he was resurrected only in the minds of the disciples or is resurrected in the spirit or that his resurrection was a myth, a fairy tale or, you know, his body was discarded into a pit of other evildoers or various other theories that seek to explain the resurrection. Well, my message this morning, I want to show to you how many of these theories invented to explain away 
the resurrection, all have serious deficiencies. And they have serious deficiencies if the Bible is just taken at face value. I don't even think you need to believe the Bible is inerrant to come to the view that says that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You just need to view the Bible as we view Plato or as we view Socrates or Homer in the Iliad or any other ancient or document or Shakespeare or, or any other. We have far more biblical evidence for far more evidence historically for the Bible than we do of any other historical document. So you just need to look at them like you look at any other historical document and say that they are historically reliable. Even if you say they're not inerrant in every spot, you still have to come to the conclusion that Christ Jesus rose from the dead. And so my aim this morning is take you to a crossroads on the resurrection. I want you to see how the best explanation... As to this fact of the resurrection is that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And the reason why I'm doing that this morning is because our text puts forth in clear terms the first invented theory for denying the resurrection of Christ. Right? The first theory was this, that some say His body was stolen. It comes in Matthew chapter 28. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open to the end of the book of Matthew. Though our text this morning in verses 11 through 15, to catch the context, I feel it necessary, we need to begin reading in chapter 27, verse 62. It's all a whole. We've taken it over several weeks. This will be good to put it in context. Matthew 27, verse 62. We read this. Now, on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir... We remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And that last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow, and the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they shall see me. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. 
And when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win Him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did just as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is this day. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. Right? Some say that the body was stolen. We're going to spend a bit more time here on this particular theory just because it deals with it in our text. I want to walk you through the text, kind of show you how absurd this lie was, and then we'll go on to some other theories. And, and to help you out, I want to give you a little hook to hang each verse on. Verse 11 speaks about the report. Right, We see the time frame for these events. It says, now while they were on their way, these words refer to the women. While Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was, had seen and worshipped the resurrected Jesus, they were on the way to speak with the disciples. Jesus had told them to go, tell them that I'm going to leave for Galilee. And there, that was their message. They're going to tell them of Jesus risen from the dead, of that they ought to go forth to Galilee. And while these women were on their way to speak with the disciples, another group was on their way to present another report, but not to the disciples, to the chief priests. It was some of the guard who came and report to the high priest. And we read in Matthew 27 about why they were there in the first place. Right, The, the Jews were troubled with the events of Jesus. They thought through a scenario that had given them great fear. They feared that the disciples might pull off a fake resurrection. They thought that that might happen. And, and so much so that they came to Pilate and, and they gave orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people he's risen from the dead. And that deception will be worse than the first. And so they were thinking ahead and, and clearly thought through the implications of all that was happening. They thought through the resurrection of Christ far more than the disciples did and they wanted to put a stop to it. And Pilate said, you have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know how. Now, there's some uncertainty as to who this guard is. Right? There's a sense where it seems like it is the, the temple policeman, right? The, the temple guard, who the, the Jews, the Jewish people just guarding uh, the temple on the mount, the Jewish people who can go in and walk among the people. It could have been that guard. It could have been Roman soldiers who regularly sought peace. We don't know exactly who this was. The only report, the only data we have is right here in Matthew 27 and 28. And we don't know the number either. There's some discussion about that. Some of the commentaries even speak about 16 soldiers comprising a guard and guarding the tomb. You know, we have a picture of uh, these two, two scared, wimpy men in skirts kind of standing by the tomb. There may have been 16 guards. We know from the biblical account that there were at least three because it says in verse 11 that some of the guard came to report the facts they'd seen. Some means more than one, means at least two. And we read that some of the guard left. That's not all of the guards, so they left at least one back of the tomb. So at least three, maybe more soldiers were there, still stationed at the tomb. Maybe they sent five soldiers to the Jews. We don't know. But it's a multi multitude. It is a plurality of soldiers and these soldiers were stationed at the tomb with one specific goal. 
Their goal was to prevent the disciples from, come, from coming and stealing the body away. They'd failed in their task. You know, it's interesting that the extent of security is easier the more focused you are on something. For instance, if you are in an armored truck, in an armored vehicle, you know that you need to protect that money and just get that money from one place to another. It's fairly easy. If you are, however, trying to guard against terrorism striking the United States, it's very difficult. Because as soon as you're guarding one thing, something else is let up. As soon as you guard that, something else. You know, and how many times do these things pop up of different inventions that terrorists have, of, of different ways in which we can say, hey, well, well, we need to guard against that. We need to guard against that. And it's endless. But if you have one task, doing that task is fairly simple. And yet, sadly, they had failed in their task. Sadly for them. <clears throat> they were fighting against the Lord of hosts. <laughs> and it wasn't going to work. Now, they went to the chief priest to report it who certainly wouldn't have been happy. And I'm sure these soldiers presented their case to the chief priest. They were as honest as they could be, explained exactly why it happened, not seeking to justify themselves, but saying, this is what took place. And I can imagine this conversation. It says, sirs, I know that you, you gave us only one assignment. You certainly gave us enough men to guard the tomb under normal circumstances. But this is far from normal circumstances. For the most part, all was quiet. During the Sabbath day, nobody came to the tomb. Even the gardener took his rest. And then, just as our watch was ending, just as the Sabbath was almost over, it happened. An earthquake took place, which startled all of us and woke us all up. And soon we saw a bright light, a flashing light, come down, descend from heaven and come right on the the tomb, and we could see that it was a man, but you know, it really wasn't a man. We think it was an angel. We've not seen an angel before, but with such dazzling clothes, it must have been an angel. It was brilliant, flashing white. And he came down and began to push the stone away all by himself. He then, having pushed the stone away, sat upon the stone almost as if he was declaring victory. He was playing king of the hill, and he was the king, it seemed like. Now, I know that we soldiers are trained to fight, but this is different. We've never seen such a creature before and we didn't know what to do. We were stunned, chief priests. And immediately some women came to the tomb. Almost as soon as the angel sat down, these women showed up and they had their arms full of spices. And the angel spoke to them saying, Do not be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. He's not here. He's risen. Just as He said, come see the place where He was lying. And, and we saw these women... Look and bend and stoop into the tomb to look. And when they came out, the look on their face was unforgettable. They seemed stunned and yet happy and yet confused and yet afraid. And as soon as they both came out of the tomb, they ran away. And we were left. The angel departed as well. We were left in silence. It took us a few moments to figure out what was going on. With a stone rolled away, we went we looked inside the tomb ourselves and we saw the grave empty. There was these linen cloths lying there, but there was, there was no body in that tomb. And we didn't know what to do. So we left some of our squadron here at the tomb and we, we came to, to uh, talk to you, chief priests. And what I've told you, you can talk to every single one of us. 
All 12 of us. And we would all tell you the same thing. This testimony is true. Cross-examination. You do that. What shall we do? What shall we do? Well, the chief priest convened a council in verse 12 to deal with this problem. The council was a bit similar to what would have taken place just a few nights before when they sought to find Jesus guilty and put Him to death. It was crisis time for the council. Their worst nightmare had come true. They knew that Jesus said, after three days I am to rise again. They quoted that in Matthew 27, verse 63 to Herod, to Pilate, rather. They knew that Jesus said. They tried to prevent any possibility from this taking place by assigning the guard over to a tomb over the tomb, and then they're going to produce this body and say, see, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and now they have no body, for the tomb was empty. They heard the testimony of these soldiers. They knew that cross-examination would find the story to be true. They knew there's no reason for these soldiers to lie about what they had seen. The facts lined up. In fact, the earthquake was felt in the city, being only a few hundred yards away. Early in the morning, oh, you know what? I did feel an earthquake. And there were eyewitness reports of having seen this, this bright light descend down from heaven. And so there was something coming on. And your testimony confirms everything that we saw inside the city. So they had to act fast. And the best they could do would be to come up with a bribe. And so at the end of verse, thir- verse 12, we see that they gave them a large sum of money to the soldiers and told them to tell a lie, right? Which is 13, the lie. Here's the lie that they were told. They were to say, the disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, for that lie to propagate, there would have had to have been a lot of money for them to propagate such an excuse. Soldiers are paid to keep their post. Soldiers are trained to keep their post. Soldiers die if they don't keep their post. Soldiers are trained to rotate their watch throughout the night. And with three soldiers, you can watch the night pretty easily. With four or five or ten, it was much easier to watch the night. The chances of them falling asleep are very slim. And besides this, Just think about the difficulty of actually performing such a task of stealing the body should they actually have fallen asleep. Think about this. For the disciples to have even dared to come near the tomb while the soldiers guarded it would have been an act of bravery in itself. Were the disciples bold, fearless warriors at this time? They weren't. When, when the, the squadron came to arrest Jesus, we read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 56, that all the disciples left Him and fled. They were scared to death. The Apostle John tells us in his Gospels that the disciples were hiding away in a room with a shut door. Right, The sense we get is that it was locked for fear of the Jews. John 20, verse 19. They weren't about to show themselves in public much less near the tomb of Jesus, surrounded by men who were protecting the tomb. They weren't brave men. But suppose they overcame that. Suppose they come to the tomb, find all of these soldiers asleep. Remember, the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb was four and a half, five feet in diameter. It was a foot, foot and a half, two feet thick, so it could roll like that. Now, you don't just roll a stone like that without causing some type of minor earthquake. 
shaking of the ground, right? And even the noise of stone on stone wouldn't have been such a quiet thing. If the ground shook a little bit, it would have been sufficient to awaken the soldiers. But suppose they did get get the thing. Maybe they greased it up. You know, they took their pennzoil and they greased it all up and rolled it. So they rolled it without, you know, without a problem. Now think about carrying the body of Jesus out of the tomb. The body of Jesus would easily have weighed 250 to 300 pounds. Jesus was a man of normal stature, 180 pounds, 200 pounds maybe. We know that they brought 100 pounds of spices, 75 pounds of spices perhaps, initially applied to the body. You can read about that in John 19.39. Now you don't just carry something 250, 300 pounds without a noise. The Guskies moved yesterday. Many of you were there to help. Uh, 35, 40 of you showed up to help, including many of the kids. It was a great time of fellowship and helping out the church. That's what the church is about, helping and serving one another. And I was watching yesterday. I noticed sometimes when some of the men particularly took something real big, you know what they did? That would have taken place with the body of Jesus. As quiet as they tried to be, there'd be some kind of exertion. I, I, I know that sometimes, you know, these big pieces of furniture, right, were lifted out, maybe and bang a little bit against the wall, or you, you would back away, or you'd stumble a little bit and fall. You know, you'd have to tiptoe out. Yeah, even a creek like that would wake them up. Listen. And they'd all wake up. Gig would be had. Step on a twig, step on a leaf, rustle a rock would have awakened those soldiers back in that night. It's deathly quiet would have been outside the city. Get out in the country sometime. Go to the garden's place. Go to the Guskies' place. Go to other places. People who live in the countryside and you're out there and you listen and it's deathly quiet. would have been like that in Jerusalem. They didn't have any freeways making noise. You know, they didn't have any sirens whooping up. It would have been quiet. For them to have stolen the body away without waking up people would have been a miracle. And if that wasn't enough, think, think about this one. Think about the grave clothes. If you're stealing the body and you're there incognito in the tomb, are you going to unwrap the body of Jesus at that time? Shh, let's unwrap the body first. You know, you're not going to unwrap the body and put the linen garment. You're going to take everything as it is and hightail out of there just as fast as possible, as silently as possible. You're not going to leave the grave clothes. It's the evidence. And on top of that, say, say all that took place. Now you need to realize the character of these disciples. Throughout the entire New Testament, their testimonies, they were righteous and honorable and honest and upright men. To have stolen the body of Jesus away and kept it a secret for all their days would have been entirely contrary to the teaching of the Master. Jesus told His disciples to speak the truth. Let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. The same is true of the early church. Non-believers in Jerusalem held the church in high esteem. Right? They were, they were amazed at their righteousness, at their, the way in which they lived, their steadfastness to the truth and how they didn't lie to one another. 
They simply weren't the types to deceive the governmental authorities. And then to have kept it quiet for their whole lives. You know, there is not one shred of evidence of anybody, any disciple, any follower of Christ speaking secretly about what really happened. Not even the apocryphal books speak anything about that. So you put all that together and you say, first of all, it's improbable. But second of all, you say that this lie would be a tough one to sell. Think about these soldiers trying to sell this lie. And yet, it was the best the council could come up with in their limited time to think about it. And it would have been very difficult for the soldiers to propagate that lie. That's why they needed a large sum of money. That's why they also needed not only the money, but they also needed the assurance from the priests. That's what I'm calling verse 14, the assurance. The high priest told these soldiers, and if this, if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Now, the soldiers knew that the high priests were pretty influential people. They'd had some assurance that such a promise could be kept. Some might say, aha, here's why they are Roman soldiers. Well, because they're accountable ultimately to Pilate. Well, maybe. But it could be that they're Jewish soldiers as well, knowing that if word got up to Pilate that these Jewish policemen can't even do this, what kind of police force do you guys have? So it all could have gotten up to the governor. But at any rate, I believe that Pilate did find out what took place. We don't have any historical evidence for that. But I believe it's almost impossible for the Romans not to notice the number of followers of Christ in the city. Just a mere 50 days later, 3,000 people were converted and began to roam the streets of Jerusalem. A short time later, several more thousand came to faith in Christ. The number of the men in church were 5,000. The number of those people milling around Jerusalem would have... You know, perhaps even talked and some word would have gotten forth to uh, Pilate and said, what about this Jesus? What about that? I think he got wind that Jesus rose from the dead. At least this story. And from the perspective of the, the, the religious leaders, the apostles filled Jerusalem with their teaching. Filled it. Just all over Jerusalem. And the political turmoil that came about as a result of this would have been intense. When Peter and John were preached... The temple was abuzz with activity and so much so that the Sadducees felt threatened and imprisoned Peter and John. And though the Jews had a measure of independence from Romans, the Romans looked upon the temple courtyard from their Antonio fortresses and they could see what was happening and they could see when people were arrested and when people were arrested, when moms were gathered, certainly they would go down and question, say, what's happening down there? Because they had a great desire for the Jews to live at peace with one another. They were poised and ready to come in and establish peace when there's any time. And so as these riots or, or you know, chaos would, would go about or, or being arrested, certainly the uh, temple guards or the, the Roman soldiers would have looked down upon that and said something's happening, would have investigated, would have found out what the issue was. These people say Jesus rose from the dead. But I thought you guarded the tomb. And all that would have happened. I think it came to Pilate's ears He certainly knew and heard that this trouble was brewing. How he responded is unknown to us, but I would predict and guess that verse 14 is true. They won him over. Kept the guards out of trouble. The result of everything was, verse 15, the plan worked. The plan worked. The soldiers took the money and did as they'd been instructed and the story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. As it is to this day. 
Now, that was written in Matthew's time. Most scholars believe that Matthew wrote the Gospel somewhere in the 60s, some 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. This lie had been propagated for 30 years and continued to do so. In fact, even we know a hundred years later, Justin Martyr, who was born about 100 A.D., made mention in his dialogue against Trifo that this theory was still circulating at the time. And you know, trust I demonstrated, you might clearly see how difficult this theory is to even believe. It's filled with difficulties. I mean, those that say his body was stolen need to fit their theory into, right, how the disciples would be brave and how the noise that would have been generated at, at the rolling of the tomb or the carrying out of the body, right, why they would have left grave clothes there, the character of the disciples. And I would say that doesn't match. It is impossible for the disciples to have stolen away the body of Jesus. Just thinking through logically everything that had to take place. It's impossible. It just didn't happen. Well, that's our first point. We've looked here at some say that his body was stolen. Let's look at the next theory about those who deny the resurrection. Some say that he didn't die. Some say that Jesus didn't die. This theory that Jesus merely fainted upon the cross. He just looked like he was dead. This is a very popular view, especially in secular religious circles. They think it explains everything away, right? Because they've seen people resuscitate before. So therefore they can say, hey, we don't believe it, but we believe Jesus could have resuscitated. But just think about what Jesus experienced. Before he was placed on the cross, he was whipped and scourged, beaten by a Roman cohort. Had a crown of thorns plus pressed painfully upon his head. He would have been bleeding profusely hours before the, the crucifixion. Maybe minutes before the crucifixion, but a time. So badly was he beaten and so badly was he bleeding that he wasn't strong enough to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion. When crucified, he had iron nails driven into his hands, his wrists and his feet, upon which he hung for six hours, losing much blood. And all those whip marks would have just continued to bleed somewhat. He certainly became dehydrated. At one point, Jesus even cried out for something to drink because he thirsted. Yeah, he thirsted. He's losing a lot of water. Because the day of preparation was almost at hand, the Jews asked for Pilate to have the legs broken so that the criminals would die so they wouldn't remain upon the cross during the holiday. And when they came to Jesus, they said the testimony of the Scriptures is that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately came out blood and water, a sign of death. The executioners all agreed before he came down from the cross that he was dead and willingly handed his body over to his friends. And then the body of Jesus was wrapped in a hundred pounds of gummy spices attached to his body while being wrapped with some linen sheets. And these sheets would have been completely wrapped around his head and his feet and and his face, completely wrapped around his breathing, would have been difficult. Even in a comatose state. And then, he would have been placed upon a cold stone slab in a dark tomb that was shut with a 1,500-pound stone that was rolled against it. A seal would have been placed on the outside of the stone which would have had to be broken before the stone was rolled away. And you think about it, inside this tomb, here's this stone which is bigger than the outside of the tomb. Newsflash, 
There weren't any handles on the inside of the stone. No leverage. I mean, you know, it's trying to, you know, move this thing by just friction with your hand. <laughs> Very difficult. And the theory that says Jesus didn't really die, you'd have to believe the incredible suffering wasn't enough to kill him. They had enough bodily fluids to survive. You have to believe that he was able to breathe through the wrappings around his body. You'd have to believe the cold stone upon which he was placed helped him to resuscitate. Oh, that's cold. Oh, oh hey. It wasn't going to work. You'd have to believe that he was able to free himself from the linen wrappings. Right? He was wrapped a little bit like a mummy. You ever done that? We play it sometimes with our kids. We take a blanket and we wrap them up, you know, like a... I don't know, like a sandwich or a wrapping or something like that. We wrap them up and say, okay, guys, try to get out. You guys remember playing that when you're smaller? You know, they wiggle and wiggle and wiggle and try to, try to get out. And you know, eventually they kind of just roll back along so that they would go it up. Jesus would have to, to break out. Of, he'd have to be Houdini in order to do this. You'd have to believe, if you believe that Jesus didn't die, that he was strong enough to roll away the stone from inside. You'd have to believe that the soldiers outside the tomb... First of all, didn't notice the moving of the stone, didn't hear the stone, right? We already talked about that. And didn't notice the stone was open so that Jesus was able to make his sneaky exit, just kind of leaving the tomb. Furthermore, you have to believe that he was recovered enough to give his disciples great hope in the power of the resurrection. You see, the disciples went from seeing Jesus risen from the dead to proclaiming the power of the resurrection to all who would listen. And I don't think their change in countenance, their change in structure would have taken place had a weak, sickly, feeble man turned to them and said, Look, I'm alive. I hurt, but I'm alive. When Jesus, it was full strength was the perspective. If you just take the historical counts at face value, he must have died. The third theory, some say his body wasn't stolen, some say he didn't die upon the cross, some say his body was in another tomb. Now, those who believe this would have to believe that the women were so distressed they couldn't find their way back to the correct tomb. People who believe this claim that there are many tombs around Jerusalem during the time of Christ, which is absolutely true. But if each would have been hewn in the rock, they all would have been a bit different taking the shape of the particular cave upon which they were, have a distinctive look and feel and easily recognizable. So the fact that you would even go to a different tomb, you say, no, this, was, this is a little bit different. This is, I don't remember this. You'd remember that. A few weeks ago, we saw how Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the grave. Chapter 27, verse 61. They knew where Jesus was laid to rest. They put Him there. And when the angel told them to see the place where He was lying, they would have noticed whether it was the same location or not. They believed it was. Okay, but think about this moment about the wrong tomb theory. It meant, for this to be true, that the women went to the wrong tomb. And then we went back and told the disciples that Peter and John ran to the wrong tomb. And then it meant also the soldiers were guarding the wrong tomb for several days. It meant that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus later would go to the wrong tomb to see indeed that it was empty. It meant the entire Jewish council would have come to the wrong tomb. It meant the Romans went to the wrong tomb. It would have meant that the angel that appeared from heaven would have come to the wrong tomb and the whole world was to the wrong tomb. All it would have taken to disprove Christianity forever is for one person to discover 
that wasn't his tomb, it was this tomb. You know, I, I imagine, you know, say, say months later, weeks later, someone else dies in Jerusalem. People are dying all the time. Common occurrence. The, the morticianer takes the body and rolls his tomb away. Oh, I thought this grave was empty. What's, what's that body? And upon investigation, would have found that it was the body of Jesus. Right? If they went to the wrong tomb, still the, the original tomb would have been there and it would have been discovered. A rolling tomb, stone tomb, it's not something you go in every day. But certainly it's, it's certainly reasonable to think that every month people go in there, every couple months, that tomb would have been visited again. It's not like our cemeteries, our graveyards, where we put some in the ground, cover it over, and leave it for the grass to grow. People come back there again and again because the body decomposes and then you're going to need to take the bones and put them in the ossuaries. Or if other people die, there are often several places for bodies to be laid. And if Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, certainly there were several places which that would be laid. They would have discovered that. They would have just taken one. But nobody ever claimed to have found the body of Jesus. And such a theory, going to the wrong tomb, is difficult to believe. It makes everybody go into the wrong tomb. I believe that's more difficult to believe than Jesus rising from the dead. Well, let's look at the fourth theory. Some say that He resurrected only in the minds of the disciples. Some people call this the hallucination theory. You guys know Calvin and Hobbes? How many of you kids know? Do you like Calvin and Hobbes? In fact, I saw today, there's something about that in the paper. There's a, like a look-alike he tried to be Calvin in the paper today. Now, Think about Calvin and Hobbes. Here's Calvin, right? this little boy, creative, un- unbelievable imagination. He plays with this pet tiger, right? And when Calvin's alone, what does his tiger do? He comes to life, right? And when the tiger's with the parents, what does the tiger look like? Like a stuffed animal, okay? And so what you're showing is this kind of like an imaginary friend that, that Calvin has got, okay? When Calvin's alone, he's got this friend and, and he's got it. So you say, here's this, is Hobbes alive? No, he sure does seem alive in Calvin's imagination. Some people, when you ask him, was Hobbes alive? They say yes, in the sense that he's alive in Calvin's mind, therefore he is alive. Now, this theory says that he was resurrected in the minds of the disciples. They say that Jesus resurrected in the minds of the disciples. They were having this imaginary friend complex. Right, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but it was the psychological state of the disciples of Jesus was such that they only believed that Jesus they only believed that Jesus rose from the dead when in fact he didn't. And, and all the appearances of Jesus are all underscored as people's imagination. That's what this theory says. Unless you think that be a a um, off the wall kind of theory, let me tell you that this is this is bigger than you think. In the 1800s in Europe. This really rose to popularity. German rationalism. People reason that it's got to be rational. People don't rise from the dead, but how do you account for all these things? Well, they just saw it in their minds. And so you didn't have Calvin and Hobbes. You had Calvin and what? Susie? Is that right? Calvin and Susie both seeing Hobbes alive. But does that ever happen? It doesn't, right? And that's common with these hallucinations. You know, children have their imaginary friends. But rare do two children have the same imaginary friend. And rare do 500 people all at the same time have their imaginary friend that they supposed to have seen. just doesn't, doesn't work. But in the 1800s in Europe, they developed this theory 
that allowed them to say they believed in the resurrection while disbelieving. In other words, those who come to believe this, when they're asked in order to be a pastor or to serve as a seminary professor or something like that, they can be asked, do you believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? And they can say, absolutely. And then the people can go away rejoicing, right? Satisfied the doctrinal statement of what they said. Our pastor, our professor believes in the resurrection of Christ. And what they don't have to tell their churches is this. Oh, when I said that I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, <laughs> silly me, I should have explained it. I believe that the disciples believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And since the disciples believe that Jesus rose from the dead, for them, He did rise from the dead, even if it was only in their head. And if it was in their head that Jesus rose again from the dead, then Jesus did really rise again from the dead in their head. Right? That's... Unless you think that that is something then off, I would say that that is something called neo-evangelicalism. It comes in the liberal churches. That that is alive and well. Evangelical in the sense that they can affirm the old doctrines. Neo in the sense that they put a new twist on the doctrine. So they fully believe the doctrines, but they just define them differently. So should you ask them, do you believe that Jesus rose again bodily from the dead? Defining it, they'll be forced to say no. But they believe in the resurrection. In fact, I remember reading a biography of, of one man who didn't believe this at all. And uh, the question came about the Apostles' Creed. Can you say, right there, we believe in the virgin birth, the, oh man, I should know this, the um, communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body. <clears throat> and I remember this man saying, you know, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. And um, actually, you'd be surprised. William Barclay. You guys ever heard of him? He's written some commentators, a lot of pastors quote. William Barclay is uh, in England. He kind of was caught up in this. This was last in the early 1900s. He said, I don't believe that um, Jesus rose from the dead. And he thought long and hard about this, but when, when our church says that affirmation, we believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead. You know, I can say that because we believe that. Even though I don't believe it a lick. Because of the we, I can say that. And so he would confidently be able to say, we believe in the resurrection from the dead. Remember when we read that? We read that in his autobiography. That is neo-evangelicalism. That is William Barclay. That is quoted by many conservative pastors because he's got a lot of insight on uh, historical things. And let him be a, a scholar there, but realize that's how tricky it is. A lot of guys like to read people called Bart and Boltmann. These guys, same thing. What they put forth in their mouth sounds really good and is good. But if you get them to say really what they believe, oftentimes you realize that it's just a house of cards. It'll all come down. And lots of people read that. Lots of people read those people. Well, such a view, I think, is so against the clear testimony of Scripture, hardly needs to be refuted. Just take the, the common, simple, straightforward approach of the Bible. Again, not inerrant. And you will see that Jesus did rise in bodily form. He talked with His disciples. He ate with them. He let them feel Him and touch Him, make sure it was real. It wasn't just in their minds. You just can't explain this away.
Now, we've looked at four theories, and for the sake of time, we're not going to look at others, but we might look at some say Jesus was resurrected only as a spirit, in terms of only as a ghost, like Jehovah's Witnesses believe that today. His resurrection was only spiritual. Some say the resurrection account was entirely fiction, added on years after Jesus died, and it was so long ago that nobody could refute it. It was this, it was this myth that came to be believed as fact, is what people say. Some say that the body of Jesus was discarded from the cross and thrown down into a pit with other executed victims, right? And a body couldn't be produced because a body couldn't be identified because everybody was upon the cross was thrown into the same pit. I say that. And theories about what took place on the Easter morning will continue to go on and on and on and on. But when you take account the Bible recorded for us at face value, there's only one conclusion you come to that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily. Because here's why. That is the only theory that can take into account the entire transformation of these disciples from fearful men to bold witnesses. To believe the body was stolen wouldn't have given them boldness if they were the ones stealing the body. To believe that Jesus didn't die upon the cross wouldn't have persuaded the disciples of the unbelievable future hope they have because Jesus would have died again. A weak, sickly man. To believe that they got the wrong tomb would never have resolved their doubts. You remember when they first came away from their tomb, how, how filled with doubt they were? Especially the, the man, they were there and they just, they were filled with doubts in the empty tomb without seeing him, even after seeing him. It says in chapter 28, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Even seeing Jesus caused them to doubt a bit. And to believe that Jesus only resurrected in their minds doesn't help either because deep down they would have known that they're deluded. Calvin, deep down, knows that he's deluded about Hobbes. They wouldn't be willing to die for their faith as ten of the eleven remaining disciples did. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the only plausible theory that you can derive from the facts. And even if you say this theory that all this stuff about the disciples is made up, then you've got to say, well, what are we gathering together here for? How is it that the church has progressed? You've got to deal with the church being Christianity. Well, let me tell you the story as we bring this to a conclusion of a man named Frank Morrison. Frank Morrison was the pen name of Albert Henry Ross, who lived from 1881 to 1950. He was a journalist who set out to write a book about the life of Christ. He wasn't a Christian. He'd just been amazed at how composed Jesus was while being so cruelly beaten. And so he wanted to figure out why it was that Jesus could, could do such good things and could die with such composure. And to act in such a manner. And he said, and I quote from his book, he said he wanted to come to the truth of why this man died a cruel death at the hands of the Roman power and how he himself regarded the matter and especially how he behaved under the test. And his ultimate motives were thus that he might be enabled to live like Jesus lived because he knew of the good reputation that Jesus had. And so wanted to find out about that. So Albert Ross picked up his Bible and began studying the account of the life of Jesus, taking notes, beginning to write a book. And as he researched into the biblical accounts, he found that his interpretation of the life of Jesus underwent a change. He said, not suddenly, 
as in a flash of insight or inspiration, but slowly, almost imperceptibly, by the very stubbornness of the facts themselves. And the book that Albert Henry Ross had set out to write simply couldn't be written. Instead, he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? His first chapter title was The Book That Refused to Be Written. He tried to write that book, but he had to write a different book instead. He wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? In his first chapter, explains, he said, It was as though a man set out to cross a forest by a familiar and well-beaten track and came out suddenly where he did not expect to come out. The point of entry was the same. It was the point of emergence that was different. The point of coming out was different than where he thought he was going to come out. And by the end of the book, he confessed his faith in the veracity of the resurrection of Christ. He wrote this towards the end of his book. Personally, I'm convinced that nobody, no body of man or woman could persistently and successfully have preached in Jerusalem a doctrine involving the vacancy of that tomb without the grave itself being physically vacant. The facts were too recent. The tomb too close to that seething center of oriental life. Not all the make-believe in the world could have purchased the utter silence of antiquity or given to the records their impressive unanimity. Only the truth itself in all its unavoidable simplicity could have achieved that. In other words, the facts of the resurrection speak for themselves. But where do you get the facts? You know, you only get them from the Bible. And the only way to refute it the resurrection of Christ, is to refute in major way what the Bible says and the truthfulness of the Bible. And you've got to get so far as to say that they're not even historically reliable and it's all story for you to have any leg to stand upon. And that's why there's a great battle that wages on the inspiration of Scriptures. There's a battle that wages on that. And those who believe that the resurrection didn't take place will do everything they can to deny the Scriptures. Why? To suppress the truth. Romans 1, to believe the lie. They don't want to believe in the resurrection. And realize this, that though they pick and choose which Scriptures they want to keep, their theories are still filled with contradiction. Even for people who just say, well, I'll keep this and I'll keep this and I'll keep this, they still can't explain Christianity. They can't explain the ultimate facts. There's no way to explain Christendom apart from the resurrections. And you need to understand also that arguments and sermons and logic and explanations will never satisfy those who refuse to believe. It will never satisfy those who refuse to believe. Right? Jesus told a story about that in Luke chapter 16. Why don't you turn over there as we close. The story is told of a rich man and a poor man. The rich man lived it up well. The poor man sat at his gates. The poor man died and found himself in Abraham's bosom. Place of enjoyment. The rich man died and found himself in a place of torment. There was a chasm between them that couldn't be fixed. And the rich man, undergoing intense suffering, says, I beg you, Father Abraham, I beg you, please, verse 27, you send him to my father's house, right? The poor man. Go. I have five brothers. 
Go that He may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. The guy was looking out for the living. He said, I've got these, my brothers of mine, and they're living, and if they continue in their life, they're going to be suffering eternally with me. I wish that they would repent and be with Him because that is better than them being with me as well. Misery loves company. Well, misery in this case was so bad that He wanted comfort for them. He would endure the misery. And then Abraham said, verse 29, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, the Scriptures aren't sufficient. Moses and the prophets aren't going to change them. They're going to believe if someone rises from the dead. Right? Verse 30, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Send this poor man to the dead. And then he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. I simply say the battle is the Bible. And you don't need to prove the Bible. You don't need to justify the Bible. You just need to use the Bible. And you need to tell people of the facts of the resurrection and what took place. And if they refuse to believe the clear testimony of the Word about what took place with Jesus Christ, I don't care what you give them, you're not going to persuade them. I don't care if you give them a band at church. I don't care if you give them drama. I don't care if you give them arguments about the existence of God. I don't care if you soften it down and never talk about sin. I don't care what you do. If they don't hear the Scriptures, they're not going to hear any other efforts. Because they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen to worldly techniques of manly wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to people. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And that's how it works. So I would encourage you, church family, stand on the Bible, trust it, and believe that there's no other option. Either it was history or it was a hoax. Either it was fact or it was fiction. And my aim this morning has been to show to you how it has to be History and fact and must be believed. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would show us of Jesus more and more every day. A simple message, the Gospel of Christ might come clear to our minds, clear to our hearts, that Jesus was raised from the dead that is the very thing that has established Him as the one who is going to judge the world. That's the very thing that provides for our justification. That's the very thing that gives us our hope. Oh Lord, may we believe it and hold on to it, embrace it and proclaim it. I think of how often the apostles spoke about the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. God, a few gospel tracts and how little of our conversation other people speak about Worshipping a risen Lord. And yet I pray that You would put that into our mouths. Lord, that we would speak highly of Christ Jesus, crucified, dead, and buried for our sins and raised according to the Scriptures. That we might rejoice in the Gospel of Christ and that You might bring others in who might hear this message and rejoice as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.